I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the Billboard Charpy Podcast. Gary Trust, Billboard's co-director of charts. And hey guys, it's Trevor Anderson, a chart manager here at Billboard. And this is where we look at why what's on the charts is on the charts, and we're looking back uh, 25 years on the charts. This is uh, one of our retro countdowns. Uh, we're going back 25 years exactly to the Billboard Hot 100, dated November 28th, 1992. We're going to count down the top 40 songs on the Hot 100. Uh, you were you were born, but you weren't too aware of what was going on at the time, were you, Trevor? Uh, no, I, I, I was not. Uh, so I guess, unfortunately, that's where this <laughs> recollection portion for me is going to have to end. That was quick. can't really tell you what was going on. I was, I was in my first semester of college. Ooh, see, Gary's a grown man at this point. Yeah, it's, it's. Big man on campus, stepping man, out. Well, that first, that first semester is weird. Everything is just so new. It's for your whole life. You've just been, you've been told what to do. Suddenly you got, you got on your own schedule. That's, that's pretty jarring. Now don't hold it back from the people, Gary. Where do you rep? You're you're a representative of what institution? Ah, that's what it means. Uh, Boston University. A BU kid. Yep. You didn't look at uh, any Boston schools, being from Houston. Um, of course, I you know of course like most people, I, I sit my hail mary into one of them, just you know to see what would happen. The one in Cambridge, and uh, it didn't happen. I mean, I feel like I feel like it's one of those things where everybody kind of applies to like one of those, just because. I mean, it's so hard to say, and you never wanted to... I mean, imagine if you, like, denied yourself that opportunity and you could right. have got in. So, anyway. School is Harvard. My, my uncle used to say, uh, yeah, I went to Harvard, but there's a, there's a there's a train, a subway stop called Harvard. So any of us can say we've been to Harvard. Just don't, don't ask follow-up questions. Dad joke. Dad joke. 25 years ago, 1992, and uh, we're going to lead up to... Uh, an amazing interview at the end of this podcast. It's going to be a little bit long getting there and then the interview itself, but an absolute legend is coming up later on the podcast, Clive Davis. So, yeah, so we we actually got a chance to talk with Clive, and that will be coming up later. It's kind of crazy because, you know, when you think of, I mean, everyone, of course, knows artists, and, and, and their names are out there all, all over the place. You know, you've heard of them. And even sometimes, you know, producers and songwriters get enough cred to where they get familiar people get familiar with their work you know whether it's metro Boomin or quincy jones or whatever um yes i'm gonna give metro Boomin that shout I was gonna out say, right now those are the two you chose well i just i wanted to give a i wanted to give something a little you know for the you know for the the currents and <laughs> some for the little, the little older people um but producers songwriters get out there as well um but you know executives really i mean if you're not really working in the business sometimes those names get overshadowed and they're not really familiar with people at all but 
to be Clive Davis and to be one of those executives and everyone knows exactly who you are. I mean, that in itself, I think, is just a, t- a testament to the legacy he's built. Um, I mean, we're, we'll talk about this a little later about some of the artists that he's worked with. But, I mean, everybody from Joplin, Springsteen, uh, Whitney Houston, of course, um, Alicia Keys. I mean, uh, helping out with, with Puff Daddy and Taurus B.I.G. And, and getting Bad Boy off the ground. So, I mean, when your career spans Janis Joplin and Mace, you're somebody. He, he, he basically is rock and roll history. I mean, if if you had to pick a like sort of a godfather of the music industry, um, I mean that Clive would definitely have to be in your top three candidates at least. So uh, we're really thankful we're able to have him on the podcast. So that's coming up uh, uh, at the end uh, as as we uh, get to number one this week. Twenty five years ago, it uh, completely relates to what was number one on the Hot One Hundred, and uh, Clive's going to share his memories on that. So so we're really excited to get to that. Uh, before then, uh, forty to one, we're going to go uh, the Billboard Hot One Hundred. So let's kick it off. Number forty. All the way to number 36 uh, first on the Billboard Hot 100 this week in 1992. This fire beneath my skin I can't believe you love me I never thought you'd come I guess I misjudged love Between a father and his son Maybe you did, maybe you are Forty through thirty-six on the Billboard Hot 100 this week, 1992. Uh, kicking us off, number forty, uh, TLC it was their second hit after uh, they had started with uh, "Ain't You Proud to Beg" uh, earlier in 1992, and there's actually one more coming up uh, in the top ten. Uh, number thirty-nine, Elton John, the last song uh, was new in the top forty this week, up at number thirty-nine for number forty-five. This was fiftieth top forty hit uh, in his career. He's since uh, up to fifty-seven, but this was uh, a milestone, a top forty hit, number fifty. And to this day, that's actually that's the fourth. He's fourth best with 57 now. Uh, only uh, Elvis Presley, 80. Uh, Lil Wayne, 71. 
and Drake, 67, have more. And uh, Taylor Swift, actually, is right uh, below uh, Elton John with a 54, top 40 hits. So uh, 22 years into his uh, chart career at this point, uh, still still really a staple of, of top 40 music, even, even with a serious uh, song like that. So uh, number 39 for Elton John, uh, number 38, Drive R.E.M. from Automatic for the People. Uh, this holiday season, a new uh, 25th anniversary a set of that uh, great album is is out this year. Uh, number 37, Forever Love from Color Me Bad after a couple of number ones in uh, 1991, I Adore Me More, and uh, All for Love earlier in uh, 1992. So this was this is uh, really the, a sign that we're in 1992 with uh, an R&B, a boy band like uh, Color Me Bad. There's more, there's more coming up, as we'll hear in the countdown, but uh, they were still going strong. And uh, number 36, uh, Trevor, this is... There's a clue. If uh, Clive Davis wasn't enough of a clue as to what the number one might be at 25 years ago, uh, Bobby Brown, there's another clue. Yeah, if you, if you can't figure it out, really, uh, based off those two, uh, there's probably only one person in world history who the two of them have a connection with. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, if you can't figure it out by now, I guess there's really no hope. All right, let's uh, move on. Number 35 through 31 on the Hot 100 this week, November 28th, 1992. That was numbers 35 through 31 on the Billboard Hot 100 this week back in 1992. At number 35, we heard the song Just Another Day by John Cicada. Uh, this is his highest peaking Hot 100 hit and one of two career top tens that he has. And he really got his start. Uh, he's a Cuban-American singer, and he really got his start thanks to probably the most influential 
Cuban singer in, in modern pop music. That would be Gloria Estefan. She hired him as a backup singer, and the two of them actually will go on to have a to share co-writing credits on one of her number one hits, the song "Coming Out of the Dark," which they wrote with her husband Emilio. Um, a hugely personal song for Gloria that came after she was involved in a, in a really horrific tour bus accident that left her having to learn how to walk again. So a huge personal moment for them. And John goes on to have a hand in a lot of other Latin hits uh, and pop hits that cross over the rest of the decade. Uh, most, probably most significantly in Ricky Martin's She's All I Ever Had, which would be a number two hit uh, at the decade's end. And right above that, at number 34, we had the song She's Playing Hard to Get by High Five. And as the name suggests, they are indeed a quintet. And as you mentioned in the last segment, Gary, um, again, one of these boy bands that we're seeing and we'll, we'll continue to see as we go up the countdown. Uh, this group in particular has three top tens to their credit on the Hot 100, including a number one hit in the song I Like the Way the Kissing Game. Similar to uh, Color Me Bad had a huge number one hit in 1991. Earlier in 1992, I've seen the same thing with a High Five. Even even after that uh, big number one, they, they followed up with other hits. And right above that, number 33, we've got I Will Be Here For You, Michael W. Smith. Uh, the guy has five Hot 100 hits in his career, including a top 10 and the song Place in This World. A uh, little, little, you know, on the adult contemporary side, uh, oh, yeah. he's, a, he's a Christian artist, so... Um, enjoying this is kind of a small window, but but there is a window in the early 90s where some of these Christian acts um, through some of these kind of adult contemporary, you know, leading leading sounds uh, make their way onto the pop charts. It was it was him and Amy Grant. They'd worked together, been friends for, for many years in the 80s. And then after all the success, Amy Grant uh, crossed over with uh, Baby Baby in uh, 1991. And uh, Michael W. Smith uh, rode kind of the same wave. And it was sort of a sign that, that he, he really was uh, you know, going for a pop hit a little bit. Uh, co-wrote the song with Diane Warren. So uh, written so many uh, pop hits in the 80s and into the 90s. And this was another not even uh, the only Diane Warren song coming up here in the countdown. So she's she's all over this uh, a little bit with 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 some hits. But uh, yeah, he crossed over. Still same sound. It's just a little bit more of a secular uh, lyric in the song. All right. Right above number 32. We've already seen two of these R&B groups. So how about a third one? We've got Belle Biv DeVoe with the song Gangsta. Um, and this group, actually, most people probably know, is a splinter group off from New Edition. So three of the members, Ricky Bell, Michael Bivens, Ronnie DeVoe, formed their own separate group. Probably best known for the song Poison out of all their hits. But this song, Gangsta, peaks at number 21. And the group goes on to have three top ten hits on the Hot 100, just as Bell, Biv, DeVoe. New Edition uh, has four to their own credit. So these guys, in their career total, have been in the top ten seven different times. So a huge move for them. And they put out their first album since 2001, earlier this year. Uh, the album's called Three Stripes. So glad to see them back in the game and back on the circuit. I'm sort of seeing a trend here. Uh, just sort of where music was, pop music in 1992. And it is considered... Uh, kind of a transition time uh, in, in, in music before we got to, to uh, more all-out uh, uh, grunge and, and rap uh, be becoming uh, bigger throughout the 90s. This was sort of that uh, cross-section time where pop had been so big uh, from the 80s and, and sounds were changing. We're, we're finding a lot of hits uh, that aren't the biggest hits by acts. You, you think of Belle Biv DeVoe, you think of Poison, you think of uh, uh, Color Me Bad, uh, uh, maybe All for Love, some of their bigger hits, even even R.E.M. and, and Elton John. But uh, it's sort of this uh, odd trend we're seeing where acts we know, but maybe songs that, that are a little bit deeper. And I think 
That's because uh, uh, we were kind of going through a different time where we'd see a lot of new acts uh, come along in the 90s as, as uh, alternative would start to take over and rap. Some of the rap superstars of the 90s hadn't quite arrived yet. So we were left with some acts that we'd known uh, from, from the late 80s, early 90s, uh, sort of building on their catalog. Yeah, it kind of is like uh, a sunsetting, sunrising kind of right. exchange. Um, I mean, it's only one, one week, you know, of course, granted, but um, if you kind of freeze this little cross section, you're right. There, there is some some change going on here. And same thing at number thirty one for this next act. Yeah, and I mean, it's funny because it's actually one one of the longest sort of staples in in pop music, the girl group. But you're right, this particular girl group kind of starting to be on their way out. We're talking about Expose. 31, I Wish the Phone Would Ring. Uh, this is a group who has eight top tens in, in their Hot 100 career, um, including a number one hit in 1988 with the song Seasons Change. Seven of those top tens have already come for the group. And this song uh, will peak at number 28, which actually will be their lowest Hot 100 hit to date. So after seven top tens, uh, number 28 hit. So you can see, you know, where, as you mentioned, the sun is starting to set a little bit on on, on the the pop, the pop success that they're they're going to enjoy. Uh, they will get back to the top ten one more time, um, but by 1995, the group is actually retired and not putting out music and performing anymore. And they'll be on hiatus really until 2003. So, um, very fitting that you that you mentioned sort of the the sunset for some groups. Kind of got, got caught up in in just uh, the freestyle uh, movement of the late '80s into the early '90s. That's uh, that's what they were known for for some of those great songs uh, that that they had, uh, especially at their first uh, album in uh, 1987. But uh, they continued to have hits. They'd made such a big name for themselves that uh, still in 1992, Expose, they're they're still getting a shot. All right, now we are up to the top 30 on the Hot 100 this week. Back in 1992, here's numbers 30 through 26. Check them out. Lord, you me tell it, girl, girl flicks up. Time to have sex up. Long time you have the road, boy, you have sweet girl flicks. Time to have sex up. Look how long you have the road, boy, you have sweet paradigm. Keep the faith. Where you go, 
chapters 30 through 26 on the Billboard Hot 100 this week. 1992, we're going back at 25 years, a Jamaican reggae artist, Mad Cobra. That would go on to number 13, Flex. Number 29, uh, Bon Jovi. Again, same kind of thing we were just saying before about uh, how you know some bands have been riding pretty high uh, with earlier hits. Bon Jovi is certainly uh, one of the all-time uh, acts uh, in, in uh, rock uh, 80s uh, chart history. Uh, first song this was, uh, Keep the Faith, of theirs to miss the top 10 on the Hot 100 after eight in a row going back uh, six years to 1986. But uh, 1992, uh, rock music was changing. Grunge, uh, earlier in the year, uh, Nirvana, uh, Pearl Jam had, had started to break through. So you know, some of the hair bands were not having quite the same success as they were, but still still having hits. So uh, number 29 for Bon Jovi, uh, kind of a time when, when some of these hair bands would, uh, would do better with ballads, actually. And they returned to the top 10 with a follow-up single, Bed of Roses, in uh, 1993. Go to number 10. Uh, number 28, Here's, uh, here's, here's how we know it, it's not 2017. In 2017, we have Daddy Yankee. In 1992, we had Damn Yankees. Where are you going now? Boo. Uh, number 27, uh, Spin Doctors, not Two Princes. That would actually come next. That would be their next single and, and pretty much their signature song. But uh, this was their breakthrough hit, Spin Doctors. Little Miss Can't Be Wrong. Sort of an early 90s classic on its own. It just uh, overshadowed at this point by Two Princes. But uh, this was the biggest uh, gainer in airplay uh, this week in 1992. It was up uh, nine notches to a number 27. And at number 26, it was down from a number 12 peak. Very similar to Bon Jovi, what we were just saying. After all this 80s success, uh, Def Leppard still having hits, but just not quite on the same level. Uh, although I love the song. Uh, Have You Ever Needed Someone So Bad ballad from Def Leppard? Uh, people probably think... Uh, love bites if they're thinking uh, Def Leppard ballad, but uh, I just I just love uh, I just love that co-written like uh, so many of Def Leppard's hits by uh, Mutt Lang, who uh, later in the '90s w- would have a whole different turn. At the time, married to Shania Twain, he'd uh, co-write so many of her hits. But uh, before that, he was having hits with Def Leppard, mm. and that song was from Adrenalize. It was the follow-up to Hysteria, which uh, probably a Def Leppard's uh, career album. But uh, even if it didn't quite hit the same uh, heights, a lot of good songs on, on that album, uh, including that one there. So uh, number 26 this week on the Billboard Hot 100. Let's keep going. Uh, we're up to number 25 now, 25 years ago on the Billboard Hot 100.
All right, and we are up to number 25 on the countdown. We just heard 25 through 21 and bringing up the rear in that section. Back to the Hotel by In Too Deep. And this is a very 90s countdown because the way you spell In Too Deep at this point is the letter N, the number two, deep, all one word, very Prince-like. People always think that like text culture would have just started when people started texting, but maybe it was cultural before that. Maybe... That's just, uh, it was already happening, and then we just transfer that to the way we communicate now. Y'all know, I mean, I'm telling you, Prince is an innovator in, in more ways than just musical sound, I'm yeah. telling you. Uh, so the song Back to the Hotel is a number 14 peak. Uh, the only top 40 hit, the only top 90 hit that these guys have. There's another number, there's another song. It's 90s, you know, top 90 for the 90s. Uh, one other hit they'll have is a song called Toss Up, which will peak at number 92, but... um. Really, for I think all most people's purposes, a one-hit wonder. Um, just two guys out of California who, unfortunately, part of the one-hit wonder situation is they uh, were signed to a label. The label got sold, and they were dropped before their second album really took off. So, kind of caught in that business limbo that we see a lot of artists in, uh, unfortunately. But but still, at this point, uh, starting the things off and with their first top twenty-five at this point. All right, and right above that, we got Shanice with the song Saving Forever for You. Uh, again, you know this is 90s because this song was featured on the soundtrack to Beverly Hills 90210. Right. And Shanice, um, I mean, we, I, we've seen kind of a lot of the, the archetypal singers at this point. We've seen uh, some R&B bands, some R&B vocal groups. We've seen Expose, a girl group. Now we've got Shanice, who really is the first sort of solo female kind of pop R&B singer which is really one of those 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 hallmarks of the 90s as well. Um, she has two top five hits on the Hot 100, well, including this song. The other one is the song I Love Your Smile, which is a number two hit on the Hot 100. And um, as you mentioned, Gary, the name Diane Warren pops up again yeah. as the songwriter here. And uh, another 90s really powerhouse, David Foster, is on production. So, I mean, you've got a Warren Foster hit in the 90s. You're pretty much gold at this point. You mentioned uh, David Foster. How about how about that for another clue who might be number one this week? You're right. You're right. So now we're up to uh, Clive Davis, Bobby Brown, and David Foster. And also, people may not know, uh, Mariah, not the only 90s singer who can do the whistle, the whistle register. Uh, Shanice actually has a cover of Minnie Ripperton's Loving You on her album. And you only cover the song if you can hit the note. Yeah. Number 23. Song People Every Day by Arrested Development. So long before the TV show. There was the group, and this group in particular kind of formed out of, out of a more positive um, social sense, a sort of a counter to, to a people, the infamous gangster rap that people loathed in the early 90s. And the chorus is actually a play on and a reflection of the song Everyday People by Sly and the Family Stone, which was the number one hit on the Hot 100 way back in the day. And uh, Arrested Development, also one of these groups who... You know, not not the longest career, but finds a nice pocket and works within it. Three top tens on the Hot 100, so so a good run for these guys. And right above them, at number 22, we have Trey Lorenz and the song Someone to Hold. Uh, this is really not too long after, I guess what most people consider Trey's really breakout moment of his career. Uh, if people know the song I'll Be There by Mariah Carey, the, the version she did on the MTV Unplugged, uh, Mariah Carey sang Michael Jackson's part. And Trey Lorenz was brought in to sing Jermaine's parts. So, uh, nice duet for him. A lot of exposure. I mean, Mariah Carey, obviously, I mean, not even a breakout star, really, at this point, you could say. Just one of the big stars of the 90s, for sure. Six number one hits already. Uh, someone to hold, though, 
curiously enough, is going to be Trey's only Hot 100 hit. When the Mariah Carey song was released, they did not put Trey as a credited artist on it. Right, he's not officially listed on I'll Be There. And even though she, even though she, you know, calls him out and right. says, I mean, everything. He's, he's right there. He does half the song, you know, almost. And and he still performs with her. Uh, well, he, yeah, I mean, they they do this song. You know, sometimes he'll show up on concert dates or whatnot. Um, I think probably most famously, besides the original MTV Unplugged performance, they sang it uh, as a duet at Michael Jackson's funeral in 2009. So I'm uh, definitely always associated with this song. And, you know, here we see Trey again in 1992. If you look at the small print on the chart, look look at the co-producer and co-writer is of this song. Yes, it is a, it is a hit for uh, Mariah Carey. She co-producer, co-writer the song. Interesting how we're, here we are counting down a, a 1992, a 90s countdown. And uh, one of the rare instances in the 90s where Mariah is actually not on the countdown. As an artist, just a little bit in between I'll Be There and before uh, she'd come back in 1993 with Music Box and Dream Lover, but uh, represented at uh, number 22. All right, we kicked off the countdown at number 40 with TLC. We saw Expose a little bit higher. And how about now we round out a trio of uh, female R&B girl groups with Free Your Mind in vogue at number 21. And, of course, girl groups, a huge staple of pop music, you know, throughout all time, but really have a resurgence in the 1990s. In Vogue, definitely one of the leaders of the pack. Six top ten hits on the Hot 100. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things you kind of, you, you hate to have to give this stat out. But uh, three of those top ten hits are going to peak at number two. So number two, three right. different times, but never a number one, unfortunately. Still, um, I mean, still, I think still some of the, the most well-known songs of the 90s. I mean, Hold On, Classic, My Lovin', the number two hit, Classic as well. And, um, you know, it's one of those things where you're like, ah, they they deserved a number one, in my opinion, at least at least once. What was the other number two hit? Uh, the other number two, besides those two songs, was Don't Let Go. From, oh, that's uh, right. From the Set It Off soundtrack. So, Would I be crazy to think that uh, My Lovin', You're Never Gonna Get It, is is the best one of those? Uh, I don't think so. Right. I mean, it's definitely the I feel like that one just really fun. stands out as, yeah. as the classic. And the else. breakdown that they do, you know, the little vocal doo-wop thing. Right. I mean, Vogue, you know, definitely one of the one of the baddest groups of the 90s. And um, shout out to them. We're seeing them on Countdown right here. And that is going to bring us to the halfway point of this countdown. 40 to 21, we've already knocked out. we got uh, 20 more to go. And when we get to number one, we'll un- unveil the, the big surprise if you... Still don't know who it might be at the top. And, of course, we're going to have our interview with Clive Davis coming. where We'll talk a lot about the number one artist and some other highlights of his incredible Rock and Roll Hall of Fame solidified career. So uh, be sure you stay on with that. In the meantime, we're going to keep going up this countdown. Here we are at numbers 20 through 16 on the Billboard Hot 100 this week back in 1992. <laughs>
Numbers 20 through 16 on the Billboard Hot 100 this week, going back 25 years. That's the Billboard Hot 100, dated uh, November 28th. 1992 at uh, number 20 huge huge hit huge a radio hit at the time charles and eddie and would i lie to you a little philly soul there uh, charles uh, pettigrew was uh, from philadelphia kind of has that sound and uh, the two uh, supposedly the two members met on the new york city subway so uh next time you take the subway trevor you might might meet someone who uh, you wind up having a huge chart hit with uh i'll keep my eyes peeled you know or, or uh, ears listen for someone who sounds good somebody somebody busking in the you know through yeah. the way maybe you're right uh number 19 michael bolton with uh bg's remake to love somebody was up uh, to the top 20 uh, this week uh number 18 uh one of the more famous but may- maybe not necessarily one of the, the biggest all-time hits for madonna that had gotten to number three and was already down to number 18 and, and only its seventh week on the hot 100 uh, erotica uh, Shep Pettibone uh, co-write uh, and, uh, and production with uh, Madonna. You just saw her on uh, Billboard.com recently. Uh, uh, Joe Lynch did a, uh, a retrospective 25 years back of the whole Erotica album. It was, well, it was a oral history. Yeah, yeah it was pretty uh, pretty controversial at the time because uh, this was really where, where Madonna, her last studio album had been Like a Prayer, which you know, was pretty straight down the middle, absolute classic pop album. She just kind of kind of threw all the rules out and, and really challenged uh, what some of the norms were. At the time, it's really a funny uh, a bit in, in, in the story of uh, the, the the record release party was just a total, it was played off the theme uh, of the album. There there were there were four doors at one point, and, and someone saw uh, so just uh, saw some crazy stuff going on the first two. Just too scared, didn't even want to see what was behind the doors uh, three and four. It was just a total party, you can imagine, uh, from a song like that. She, she liked to shock Rich people. Rich and imaginative, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, you know, the, the whole album, it was kind of different. It was a more of a sensual-sounding album. Uh, the song I always like Rain. It was still kind of like her 80s pop. She she did make sure to at least put something on there that was still kind of kind of what her, her sound had been. But this was, we're beginning to see that Madonna wasn't uh, just the sound she'd uh, given us in the 80s. She would uh, uh, would go in this direction, but do a total 180 by uh, the mid-90s with uh, the Evita songs and, and, yeah. and, and more acting uh, roles. And, so I mean, bedtime stories, kind of, you know, a, a, change of pace and album as well yeah although that was kind of kind of a sonic follow-up to erotica just a little bit a little bit more the softer side but still kind of had some of those uh some of those r&b influences that she hadn't really shown before sure and then i mean of course by the end of the 90s a ray of light that's going to be you know another sort of flip in the in the script as well right uh number 17 uh, on the countdown uh john cicada his second hit uh, we heard just another day back at uh, number 35 another big hit uh, up to number 17 up to the top 20 this week at the time for uh, do you believe in us and at number 16, after uh, so many hits with Eurythmics, uh, Annie Lennox, not the deepest uh, solo career of hits, but she had some, some good songs. Why? In uh, 1992. And uh, this song was the follow-up, Walking on Broken Glass. Uh, a few years later, 1995, she'd have uh, No More I Love You. So you combine her 80s uh, hits with Eurythmics into the 90s. She was, she was a pretty good staple for, for a couple decades with uh, some great songs. And really, no one else sounds like her. She just has a, a unique voice and a, a unique perspective. So a great solo hit for Annie Lennox, number 16 this week, 25 years ago. Let's uh, keep going with uh, actually the highest uh, debut uh, on the entire Hot 100 at number 15. New song, but an old song, a remake of a classic from Boys to Men this week, 1992. <laughs> Tight. 
Numbers 15 through 11 on the Hot 100 uh, this week back in 1992. As you said right before the top of that, that break, Gary, number 15 is going to bring us to the, the highest debut of the week on the Hot 100. Boys to Men. I mean, it's, is it really a 90s countdown if we don't mention Boys to Men? With the song In the Still of the Night, I'll Remember, which uh, you know is really an old doo-wop classic, been remade so many times. Um, but of course, the boys, who I think probably are pound for pound the best acapella vocal group of the past quarter century at least putting their touch on it you know something special and they make it a you know a huge hit i mean it debuts at number 15 which goes to show how popular boys to men is at the time and this is not the last time we're going to see boys to men on this countdown right so they're still going to be up there uh this song actually was recorded for the the film the jackson's film that came out that same year uh angela bassett playing the mother and so I've been almost like a mini series in itself. It's like a journey right? really through, I mean, the entire Jackson life at that point from, from the beginnings and Gary all the way through the solo success and, and victory and all those things. Gary, Indiana. Get, yes, Gary, Indiana. Uh, the song will actually go on to hit number three on the Hot 100. And as we know, I mean, Boyz to Men did so much damage on the charts in the 1990s. Five number one hits. Three of those number one hits go on to at least have... 10 weeks or more at number one. The only act in the Hot 100 history to have three songs each do at least 10 weeks at number one. And yeah, kind of nice the way they tied into a previous music history by uh, going back to, to the roots of, uh, of acapella and a doo-wop doing a song like that, really uh, showing appreciation for those who would uh, come before them. Yeah, and you, I mean, you got to know your chops if you know some of these old songs and to take it on, you know, and probably knock it out of the park better than anybody else. All right, moving on to number 14 this week. We've got the song Love Is On The Way by Saigon Kick. Uh, oddly, kind of, a, a really, I guess you could say, a one Hot 100 hit wonder. The only song that charts on the Hot 100 hit from Saigon Kick, a number 12 hit. And uh, kind of in that, that 80s holdover sound. I mean, we're not too far removed from the 80s. It's only 1992. But, you know, just kind of in that that power ballad kind of way. Um, just kind of stands out, I think, at this point, rather than a lot of the, the R&B and urban influences we're seeing um, that, you know, but shout out to them for, for lodging a rock song up there as well. All right, number 13, we got the song Jump Around by House of Pain. Almost nothing that you can not say, like, say about this song that people don't already know. It's such a, it's, I mean, it's one of the songs that really has aged probably the best out of the 90s. Right. Still something that you can, you can hear on any 90s throwback radio station. It's got just enough. You know, it's, I mean, it's obviously a rap song, but it got just enough fun in the hook. It's got just enough sort of edge to it that I think even even some like the the rocker kind of you know grungier kids can, can sort of appreciate the sound of it. Weird how what, 1992, if you wanted a, a hip hop hit, you you just you just said jump a lot in the chorus. It that's, all it, that's all it takes. I yeah. mean, Jermaine Dupri proved that with Crisscross, and uh, here we go again. 
Also, uh, I'll give it a little, little, little inside baseball tease, but this, the second verse of Jump Around starts with the line, uh, I'll serve your ass like John McEnroe. And uh, that's actually not the last reference to John McEnroe we are going to have on this countdown. So Johnny Mac, you know, a, a huge, a huge influential figure in 90s music. Who would have guessed? All right, at number 12, we had just talked about uh, rock music at this time. And here we are with one of the all-time rock legends, Eric Clapton, and the song Layla. Now, Layla, some may be perking their ears. Layla was out way longer than 1992, and it definitely was, but gets a revival when he performs it on his MTV Unplugged set. Um, also on that set, he's going to perform Tears in Heaven, which had been a hit uh, just the year before when it was released as a single, number two hit on the Hot 100. So um, Eric Clapton really really having a, a great career revival, really, at this point. Um, that MTV Unplugged album is going to win the Grammy Award for Album of the Year. So uh, pretty rare that a live set is able to take that honor. And uh, this is... I mean, this, this this sort of nice commercial move for Eric is is uh, one of the last times we'll see him sort of majorly influence the charts. Uh, he's only going to hit the Hot 100 one more time after this. Uh, that will be with the song Change the World a few years later from the Phenomenon soundtrack. But, you know, I mean, when you're a three-time Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee, you, what more do you really need? Yeah, and how many rock classics are there like Layla that wound up becoming a hit a second time in a totally different version? Just obviously a more adult production and sound, but at its core, shows it's a great song. You can do it in any style. And some of the criticism says, you know, in sort of music history, that Layla wasn't really appreciated the first time around. But this this second wave, you know, kind of with this and maybe the way it was performed in a different kind of setting when people realize how great a song it really is so maybe it's one of those things too where you know i mean the second time around not only helps you commercially but really to to solidify this is as one of the best pure rock songs ever created all right and we are going to uh in the suspense of our john McEnroe illusion earlier number 11 patty Smythe. sometimes love just ain't enough song was a uh number two hit performed alongside Don Henley and uh, one of two top tens in Patty's career. Uh, some people may know from the 80s. She was re- originally with the band Scandal before she went solo and uh, went off to a nice solo career there. Rumor has it that she could have had a completely different career path. Some say that Eddie Van Halen approached her to become the lead singer of Van Halen. Really? I didn't know that. After David Lee Roth left. She apparently she turned it down because she was eight months pregnant, and uh, I think she didn't really think she could vibe with sort of the lifestyle that you know sort of the boys' club would have to offer. And of course, some may be saying, "Okay, so why does what does that have to do with John McEnroe?" Well, Patty Smythe later marries John McEnroe, so uh, twice in the top fifteen now, without even having to sing a note. We've mentioned John McEnroe. The uh, the funny thing to it, uh, sort sort of a joke in rock circles of uh, whether you like uh, sort of the more indie stuff or the more poppy side of rock. If if you're a fan of uh, Patty Smythe or if you're more a fan of Patty Smith. And uh, Patty and John are not the only couple that we are going to be talking about for the rest of this countdown. We got um, even right there in the top ten in this week. Take a snapshot and you will see one of the biggest couples in music history. One of them uh, may be coming up just right now at number 10 through number 6. Here we go on the Billboard Hot 100 this week back in 1992. We don't need no sheets. We can just close the door. My 
Sex in the Billboard Hot 100 this week, 25 years ago in 1992, uh, starting off with a couple acts we've already heard in the countdown. Bobby Brown, Good Enough, uh, Babyface, L.A. Reid song, kind of has that that uh, slickness uh, to it, that lush uh, kind of production. And again, uh, Bobby Brown related, uh, literally at the time, to uh, who's uh, coming up at number one. Uh, TLC, uh, again at number nine, we'd heard them uh, kicking off the countdown back at number 40. Uh, they were in the top 10, down from number 7 peak with What About Your Friends. So uh, their third uh, top 10. Uh, so it started it all. And, and so much bigger success still to come for a TLC. Some of these bands we're talking about kind of had a, a one or two year run, really, of, of just uh, of, of peak hits like uh, High Five and, and uh, Color Me Bad a little bit. But uh, TLC all the way, even by the end of the 90s, uh, maybe at their biggest, uh, their their highest uh, of their peak with uh, with No Scrubs, but before that, uh, Waterfalls and, and Creep and some of the stuff in 94, 95. So a uh, really successful decade, obviously, for uh, TLC. And this was this was just the beginning in uh, 1992. And shout out to uh, the producer of the song and, and co-writer, one of, the, one of the great R&B artists at the time, Dallas Austin. Uh, so number eight's interesting because no one could have known at the time, or maybe maybe people really did hear it and, and knew this was the beginning of, of a career of of uh, one of just the most influential R and B uh, singers of uh, of the '90s, uh, really all the way through today. She had one number twenty nine hit earlier in nineteen ninety two. Uh, you remind me, but uh, this was the first top ten of six so far. And you say that it, it doesn't even sound maybe as impressive as just uh, really what just how big her career has become. First top ten, real love. In 1992, for Mary J. Blige, and you know, I I see it's not credited actually on this song, but I mean, so much of Mary J. Blige's success really coming uh, arm in arm with with Puff Daddy, one of the artists who really took her under. Yeah, he's not. Yeah, he's not there, but right. under his wing, uh, you know, Puff Daddy started interning at Uptown Records, and and really, um, when Mary came along, they just have a partnership that's, you know, really been solid throughout the uh, the entire quarter century. Uh, really know we're in the 90s just the sound of number seven uh, rhythm as a dancer for snap uh, similar sound to real mccoy another night to be two years later but that that euro dance uh, that was just uh, really uh, really big in the early 90s just a full wall of sound uh, dance uh, production so uh, rhythm as a dancer was at uh, number seven for snap and uh, once again uh, boys to men at number six down from a 13 week run at number one for end of the road and you were saying before trevor the, these big hits they've had this really puts in perspective how big they were at, at that time in the 90s it was a 13 week number one that's their third longest running number one hit they also had a 14 week number one uh, in 1994 with uh, i'll make love to you and uh, the all-time uh, now tied by despacito but uh, 16 weeks at number one with mariah one Sweet Day, 1995-96. But this was their first number one, uh, 1992, End of the Road. All right, we're on to the top five now, getting towards number one this week on the Billboard Hot 100, going back 25 years. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? 
and some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. We are officially in the home stretch. At number six, before before that little break, we heard Into the Road, Boys to Men from the film Boomerang. And right above number five, we also have another Boomerang cut, PM Dawn's I'd Die Without You. Three top ten hits for PM Dawn, uh, including the number one set adrift on Memory Bliss, which is, it probably goes down as one of my favorite Hot 100 song titles, because if you look at that song, you would you wouldn't know what to expect. What does that mean? Set adrift on memory bliss. Uh, but yeah, at this point, I Die Without You um, from the Boomerang soundtrack, as I mentioned, which, uh, you know, it's sort of one of those understated albums of the 1990s. But uh, when you look at sort of all the things that it gave us, it really was was a, a nice sort of sea change in, in R&B and production. Babyface and Ellie Reed handling most of the, the duties there. Um, no surprise that, that it becomes a huge 90s hit. Into the road, like we mentioned, 13 weeks at number one, setting a brand new record on the Hot 100. We've got another top five and I'd Die Without You. This also is the album where we get the first taste of Toni Braxton. Um, we'll mention her a little bit later because her, her debut is is on this chart, just underneath the top 40. So, um, you know, for one of those albums that's not, you know, necessarily heralded as as yeah, the thriller or, you know, this, this big watershed moment, Boomerang did provide us with a good number of hits, four top 40 hits in all, um, including just the ones at number five and six. 
And right above that at number four, we got Rump Shaker by Rex and Effect. And if you had to give L.A. Reid and Babyface a run for their money back in the early 90s, I think you would not do any better than picking out the man really behind this song, Teddy Riley, who really was was the, the main in, innovator and architect behind New Jack Swing, which was a huge sound coming out of the late 80s into into the early 90s how big is teddy riley i mean this is the point where you know michael jackson for his dangerous album his first album in the 90s went to teddy riley and did not go back to quincy jones after they had had off the wall and thriller and bad so if you're big enough to where michael jackson is you know willing to 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 change his whole sound and image for you you got to be somebody and teddy's delivering right here the song is going to be a number two hit uh one of the songs that will unfortunately be trapped behind what is the number one hit coming up in just a few seconds? And uh, shout out on this song in particular because they say that some of Teddy's verse in the song would have been written by his protege at the time, Pharrell Williams. Ah. So Pharrell out there, the ageless wonder Pharrell out there getting a start. Uh, they're saying he wrote some of Teddy's verse, if, if not really the whole thing. And there's uh, also some some rumors, some talk out there, never really confirmed that Pharrell may have had more production duties on the side, which, given his role as a producer nowadays, we know, wouldn't be that much of a surprise. I mean, if this this could be very much the man's start. All right, at number three, we got Shy, If I Ever Fall In Love. And one of these songs, again, that just has the misfortune of timing. Timing is just so important in music, and I, on these charts in particular, the song is going to have two months at number two. Eight weeks it will spend trapped behind just... Unfortunately, one of those almighty number ones. We uh, saw that with uh, Ed Sheeran and Thinking Out Loud was stuck behind Uptown Funk. Yeah. So it, it still happens sometimes. And I mean, even even this year, Wild Thoughts, you know, trapped behind Despacito for what people, you know, thought it could be the one to knock it out. And it just had to settle for that runner-up spot every week. But if I ever fall in love, right there in that same boat. Um, and Shy, you know, we've seen just here so many times. Another one of those R&B groups, big, big, big in the moment. Um, and their next two songs also hit the top ten, and they, they, you know, from there kind of backtrack and slide off the way a lot of a lot of these groups do. But again, when they're hot in that moment, they were hot. You make me remember one of those hits, uh, "Baby I'm Yours." I actually I like that better than than this a little, little poppier. Well, you know, but if I ever fall in love, it just got it just has such a good, just a need to it. And, and one of the things too, I mean, we as we talk sometimes about how formulaic a lot of these hits can be. I mean, the shy song is very boys to menish. And maybe maybe since they're out at the same time, it's not quite fair to say Boys to Men was the original. But I mean, there's even that spoken word part that everybody you know likes to sort of parody when they think of '90s R&B songs. You know, baby, I've been thinking about you a long time, and you know, I want us to be back together. You were born too late, Trevor, Mr. Collin. I was, you know. I mean, that right there. I mean, I I got lost right there. So. I was I was the right age at the time, but I did not miss my call. <laughs> that was not my calling. And uh, right there at number two, bringing up the silver medal spot this week, uh, falling out of the number one spot. How do you talk to an angel by the heights? Uh, the song had been number one for the previous two weeks. So uh, once Boys to Men fell out, this was the song that actually replaced End of the Road at number one and was the theme song to a TV show on Fox called The Heights. And it was the first song actually from a TV show to top the Hot 100 since 1985, when the Miami Vice theme took over. Now, if you don't know who the Heights are, that's okay, because it's actually a fictional band. The Heights, I mean, there, 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 are, there are no Heights. 
I mean, it was from the TV show, but Jamie Walters, lead singer, he'd go on to have uh, a solo hit, Hold On, in uh, 1995. Um, and it's actually a, a pretty bad week in Heights history because um, Fox canceled the show, The Heights, in November 1992. Yeah, it's uh, kind of famous in, in uh, pop history for uh, uh, outlasting the TV show from which it came. But you still hear it on AC radio. It's a great uh, early 90s uh, pop song. And there weren't a whole lot of songs at this point that sounded, uh, this was much more of an 80s kind of a traditional pop song. So we've heard a lot of a lot of R&B. We've heard a lot of uh, vocal groups. We've heard some some early 90s uh, hip hop uh, kind of starting with, with some of the some of the sounds like TLC, which would introduce uh, more uh, sounds that would take it more hip hop driven in the 90s. And uh, some, some rock bands, uh, ballads, uh, this is one of the few uh, songs in the entire top 40 that we've heard that was just straight down the middle pop and uh, just a great song. And, and timing-wise, as you've been talking about, Trevor, lucky that it snuck in at number one before the song that was number one this week, 25 years ago, took over for, for quite a bit. And to set that up, we'll actually jump right back to number six. When we talked about Boys to Men, mentioned that End of the Road had 13 weeks at number one. That broke a record that was first established in 1977 when Debbie Boone's You Light Up My Life had 10 weeks at number one, later joined by Olivia Newton-John Physical at the uh, top of the 80s, 10 weeks at number one as well. Um, if you want to be give some shout-out to even some of the old rock historians who, who want to give Elvis Presley some, some predated credit, uh, some people you know argue that Hound Dog and Don't Be Cruel had 11 weeks at number one, but... Everyone can agree that no song had been number one for 13 weeks across the board since Boys to Men. Well, the Hot 100 started in 1958 after those Elvis hits, so those were on pre-Hot 100 charts. There's your your trust disclaimer uh, there. And so Boys to Men has this huge record. You know, they've broken since, I mean, some people give them 36 years of, of back credit. You have to give them at least 15 years of credit for breaking this record. And that record is going to stand for 15 weeks unfortunately again it's all about timing gary all about timing because the song that moves into number one this week jumping up from number 12 so a 12 to 1 jump and the week before that it actually been number 40 so to go 40 to 1 in just two weeks you know you got a massive hit on your hands and uh hits really far and wide do not come bigger than this song here it is the number one song on the Billboard Hot 100 in 1992, and we'll let her take it away. If I should stay, I would only be in your way, so I'll go. But I know I'll think of you every step of the way. And I There it is, the number one song on the Hot 100, November 28th, 1992, Whitney Houston, I Will Always Love You. Uh, the song is going to be, like we mentioned, a record breaker for, for not just Whitney, but the Hot 100 overall. The first song to spend 14 weeks at number one. 
I mean, we're, this, we're talking in November 28th, Gary. We're not going to have a new number one song until March 93. Right. So, I mean, that's just... The, the winter of 92 was really, really Whitney's winter. Song of the winter. So, song of the winter. Um, as we know, I mean, sort of the accolades are, are endless for the song. Uh, wins record of the year at the Grammys. It's going to be the top song of 93 on the Hot 100. Whitney's biggest career hit by far. One of the most iconic songs ever. And the song had already been, of course, been a hit for Dolly Parton several times on the country songs chart. But for Whitney to take it, make it her own, I mean, to take this song around the world, just, I mean, you know, what can you say? I mean, everyone knows this song. It's so iconic, so well known. And as part of that, we have a super special guest talk about some of the memories of when that song hit number one, what that meant for Whitney's career at the time, and, you know, what it was like making this song. I mean, this was for her first film, The Bodyguard. Some people were kind of nervous about her going into acting. And with this, I mean, the soundtrack delivered really a, not even just a home run. This is this is a grand slam. And here to talk about all of that with us, we are going to bring in the legendary Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, Clive Davis. And Clive was recently the subject of a biographical documentary, The Soundtrack of Our Lives, which traces his career, which spans... I mean, so many, so many eras and so many artists, um, everybody from Janis Joplin, he mentions Bruce Springsteen, uh, of course, Whitney, even to Alicia Keys and, and some of the artists in the present. Um, but as is noted in the documentary, um, one of his sons says, you know, his father's reference with everybody, you know, there's Springsteen, there's Joplin, but the the one artist he's always linked to the most is Whitney Houston. Right. I um, mean, they were really inseparable, guided her, her whole career. And so... Um, to share some of that with us and some insight about, you know, just what a legendary career he's had. We've teased it enough. We've set it up enough. Here we go. Let's welcome in the one, the only, Mr. Clive Davis. And I will always love you. So first things first, obviously, this is the first single from the soundtrack to The Bodyguard, which was the first film Whitney was in. Um, when I watched uh, your documentary on Apple Music, The Soundtrack of Our Lives, um, one of the things that stood out at the beginning was uh, when Whitney wanted to do a film, was she, the, was she the first person who decided she wanted to do a film, or who, who pushed her in that direction? Well, I did not push her um, at all in that direction. Really, she decided herself that she wanted to branch out into film. I initially uh, was apprehensive. I mean, here um, we really had only done three studio albums. Um, clearly, we had broken almost every record in the book. She was a worldwide star. Um, I was surprised, frankly. Um, but she did feel strongly about it, and it was she and her agent, Nicole David, um, who decided that Bodyguard would be her first film. And I know when you when you first saw the cut of The Bodyguard, um, you said you watched it over Christmas, were, was not a fan of the film, were you? No, when I saw the first rough cut, uh, 
I was literally scared. Um, it was a thriller with one song. Um, you really didn't know why Whitney needed a bodyguard. They, <laughs> uh, they really, um, her part was such, and without her um, demonstrating her prowess as a singer, uh, as an iconic potential singer, um, you know, it really was not holding together. And so I wrote a letter, um, and I wrote a letter to the director, Mr. Jackson, and and also Kevin Costner. Um, and I said, look, I know you're going to attribute this letter to the fact that I'm the head of a record company and that I would want more songs in the movie. But here it's essential uh, that you really uh, show how incredible and special uh, Whitney as the character is and was. And so I did encourage very, very strongly as critical um, that Whitney be allowed to do her thing and that the film really show why she needed a bodyguard and that the um, the, the character interchange um, become much more uh, crucial and setting up um, every aspect of the film, the thriller aspect, but also the lurking romantic uh, aspect. And I've got to say, it was Kevin Costner who responded to that letter. Um, he really picked it up in an affirmative, very strongly affirmative way, and personally uh, became much more take charge. Um, and it was he that was really open uh, to the film. Um, David Foster and Linda Thompson, his wife at the time, wrote, I Have Nothing. Um, I came up and submitted Run to You. Uh, and lurking in the background was always the question of what song would be in the climactic airport scene. And it really was Kevin, uh, Kevin Costner, who made the suggestion uh, of I Will Always Love You. And really, he made the suggestion with simultaneous um, contact uh, with David Foster, with Whitney, and with myself. Um, and all three of us, uh, without consultation with the other, but all three of us responded unanimously that it was a great idea. Um, and that's how I Will Always Love You got in the film. And for the soundtrack, um, obviously the, the song fits perfectly in, in turn with the movie. Was there any apprehension uh, on anybody's part, whether whether yours or Whitney's, about turning uh, what was a country song that people knew so well into uh, this this huge pop and R&B ballad? It has a 45-second acapella intro, which, which may have been a tough sell at radio. Was anybody worried about how it would work outside of the film? Well, let's take that step at a time. Number one, nobody expressed concern. I mean, you don't have... Um, the genius here was the was also... Um, you start, obviously, with the basic song itself, uh, and then, really, the arrangement. 
uh, of the song. It was David Foster uh, who sent me right at the studio, right after the first cut was done, before he thought the record was finished. Uh, it was he who sent me um, the first cut right after Whitney had sung it um, in the studio of I Will Always Love You. And, you know, I'll never forget the first time I heard it. It, it without question, sent chills up and down me. Now, it sounds cliche, that, that, but the answer is that's what happened. And you get that spine tingle, you get that reaction, uh, and you just say, wow. And I heard it, I loved it. Uh, I, I called him up immediately, and, and I said, I just absolutely love it. And he said, but wait till you hear what I'm going to do to it. Um, you know, I've got ideas as far as the arrangement. And, you know, at the time I didn't say anything. I mean, I love what I heard. Uh, and then in a succession uh, of attempts, uh, David added instrumentation to it, sweetened it, um, and kept sending um, new, in quotation marks, um, mixes and versions of the song, each of which I, I said, you know, it's not as strong as that first one. And obviously you got you got to really guard against getting what they call demo-itis, falling in love with that first rough cut or that demo, you know. But I just kept listening uh, and saying it's a little slick, this instrumentation. It doesn't capture the rawness of the emotion which made that first cut so very special. So we kept having this dialogue. And then one day, Warner Brothers called me and they said, look, you're past the deadline. This is, uh, you've chosen this. This is the first single. The movie's opening. You literally have, you know, hours to decide you got to come with that single. That's our contract. And at that point, you know, that that was the most tense time because here the only version that I had received to date uh, was that very rough cut that David had sent me that got this incredible reaction uh from me, and I, you know, pushed the button, and I said, you know, we got to observe, we got to, uh, you know, make the decision, and I decided to release that very first cut, and as the documentary graphically shows, it was a very heated exchange uh, initially, that first time when David learned that I had um, decided to go with that first cut. Um, as I say, he called me every obscenity that one could ever imagine hearing. Um, but I must say, within 24 hours, um, he called me up and he said, my God, I'm getting calls like I've never gotten. People 
They're driving to the side of the road. They can't even continue riding normally and hearing the record uh, on the radio. And he he said, "Okay." He you know he was really wonderfully uh, appreciative. If I should stay, I would on. Be in your way. So I on the subject of the a cappella, yes, there was comments coming from certain radio people to our promotion staff, advocating changing the beginning, taking out the a cappella. And so, yes, there were several calls, um, but frankly, um, this was the classic. And it's at these times, you know, where you've got to know the exception to the rule. You can't always uh, do formula work. Uh, I was very proud in the documentary when you know, I was not a part of the interviews where separately Simon and Garfunkel were shocked when I picked Bridge Over Trouble Water as the first single from their forthcoming album where they thought I'd pick uh, Cecilia something up-tempo and certainly not a much longer than standard uh, ballad as the first single from that album. But it's at these times where you've got to know you just can't always resolve uh, issues uh, by giving the standard formulaic response. You got to know when there's a lurking exception. You got to know when there's a lurking home run uh, that makes it unique by its difference and stand by it. And keeping the a cappella and um, and everything about the record uh, as it turned out in its interpretation nobody taught Whitney her classic version of that song in person uh, yes the record came out yes it exploded no anxiety no sometimes it takes a while that record I will always love you exploded right out of the box everywhere all over the world wherever it was released everybody the calls kept coming in, amazing, old-timer. Um, but what was unexpected and a part of the genius of Whitney, that when she came to perform this song live, you can't teach an artist this. This is what makes, first of all, at the first level, a headliner as or a star as compared to a good singer, um, and a good performer. And then you get to that next level when even for a superstar, you get that signature uh, uniqueness that they add. And this is the genius of Whitney. Not only was the genius in her voice, but when she, that pause, you remember, when she sings it live, and she moves her head left 
to write and keeps a serious demeanor. And then when she moves it back again, before she hits that note coming out of that pregnant pause with a warm smile, no one can ever forget how she raised the level of her performance of the song to the level of the record where each was a once-in-a-lifetime rendition. How do you know when you've heard a hit? Is there something you're always looking for when you listen to a song? Or is it one of those things where you know it when you hear it? Or sometimes, are you surprised by certain songs that you've released that became bigger hits? Well, you never can know the magnitude. Uh, you, you feel, wow, this is a hit. Or, oh my God, this is a... First of all, the first thing, A, is this a single or not? That's a critical decision, that first decision can something uh, can a record, can a song uh, be a hit, be a single and then um, once you're there you're feeling good, there's adrenaline pumping Um, but to say uh, you never can say, oh this is going to become the biggest single of all time (laughs) I think this is this will be number one for 14 weeks. I mean, no, you don't think in those terms. You do think that it could be a single and that it could, if it catches on, really uh, be big. Um, obviously, um, I have a heavy respect for failure, by the way. So I operate, maybe my ethnic background, I operate uh, never assuming anything. And... Um, just with a strong work ethic, you know, just feeling my way up there, um, and not just, it always hurts if you brim with too much overconfidence or you expect it. So obviously that first single, uh, when I started Arista, that first single that, of Mandy, I mean, here Barry Manilow was an unknown. I mean, uh, the first record ever released. Uh, after the trauma of being let go at Columbia, and and, and could I, um, as a former lawyer, head a company, a brand new company, can we have success and become a major? So that obviously all the emotion in that first single, Amanda, I mean, you could say, well, I think it's a hit record, but I got to tell you, you don't just say, oh, this is going to be a number one record, and it's going to put Arista uh, on the map. That first single um, with, with with Carlos Santana, you know, it's one thing when I signed the band in the late 60s and they had Oya Kamaba, they had Black Magic Woman, they had Evil Ways, so that, yeah, we had an incredible run. And then our lives separated. So you fast forward, uh, 
26, 27 years. And as Ahmed Erdogan so says in the film, you know, when he says, oh, my God, here is a uh, guitar player, a virtuoso guitar player, but he's in his 50s and he doesn't sing. And he's coming with a single after not having been on the charts for a few decades. You know, you hear smooth and you say, wow, yeah, you got Rob Thomas on lead. You got a record that sounds good, but you don't just release it. So there I used my pre-Grammy gala. How do we get the tastemakers to take seriously a middle-aged guitarist who doesn't sing, who hasn't had a hit single in two and a half, three decades, and um, and get behind it. So there I used my pre-Grammy gala, and I put them on stage, and major programmers were in the room, the key people from MTV, from uh, the tastemakers, and I had them do both Smooth and Maria Maria, and they blew the roof off, and of course, word of mouth spread, and Richard Palmisi and the great promotion team he had, you know, took it and and broke Smooth to all-time levels. I keep on falling Another single for Alicia Keys. Um, God, I signed it. We heard the record. We had gone through the change from Arista to Jay. Alicia was wonderful with her loyalty and came with us too, with Peter Edge and uh, Charles Goldstuck and Tom Cross and everyone to uh, Jay Records. And Fallen was, that gave you apprehension. There's a case where we thought, wow, this is going to be a big hit single. And yet it stalled. Um, The urban uh, stations wanted a little more uh, tempo, um, and it was stalling. And the pop stations were waiting. Here was a brand new artist. They were not going to go on. Um, an African-American artist without it showing that it was a hit at Urban. So there we did have the anxiety. Oh, my God, you know, what do we do? This great record, this great song is is in limbo. And it was then that I decided that I would write a letter to Oprah Winfrey, who had never really done for music what she had done for books, and literary uh, new books and writers. And I wrote her a letter and I said, you know, seeing what you've done in the literary world for books and new writers, music, neo-soul, had just raised its head, led by D'Angelo. And now there are at least three young females uh, that are so spectacular, that are so... um, talented, uh, one of whom records for me, Alicia Keys, let me urge you, do for music what you do for books. Put all three artists on your show, and um, 
I think that you will strike a real applause for all of us in music uh, today. And she responded, she called me, and she said, look, how good is Alicia in person? I said, I think she's great. I think she's terrific. She says, I have a big dinner. This was Friday. I have a big dinner tomorrow night in Chicago. And if she's as good as you say she is, fly her out to this dinner. And if she, and first of all, let me guarantee, I will do the show that you suggest. And she put on not just Alicia, but to be magnanimous, I had suggested Indy Avery and Jill Scott. And she says, I'll put all the artists, these three artists on. I applaud you. Only one of the three is on your label. But if Alicia does what you say she could do, I will, prior to the broadcast, I will know every word of that song. And I'll be in the audience backing her up and singing it. That's just what happened. You create the opportunity, but it is the genius of an Alicia Keys. You could create that opportunity, but it's the artist that's got to deliver. She delivered at that dinner on the show. The, the camera kept going to Oprah, who did know every word of Fallen. It was an incredible performance on that show, and it helped explode the record out of limbo. And after the apprehension that we had, boom, it just took off, and it became the all-time hit that Fallen is. One last question, uh, in particular on on Whitney and and I will always love you. Um, before opening to a little more, um, besides that, but I do want do what you have to do. It's okay. <laughs> I do want to ask, um, especially since we're we're looking at the Hot 100, uh, look at look at the 14 weeks in particular about what the song did, uh, breaking the record. Do you remember when the song hit those 14 weeks? The first song to hit 14 weeks. Uh, what were you, what was your reaction and what was Whitney's reaction? The record, first of all, as I said, exploded as soon as it came out. And um, it was the first single from a movie. I mean, when it exploded everywhere, of course, Warner's was thrilled. I mean, uh, it was not just an ordinary single. This was an explosive. Everybody was talking about it. Every radio disc jockey was in effect, promoting um, the film, um, the record was getting unbelievable reaction, both in uh, requests and uh, every aspect uh, of it, so that um, they're really... And then, of course, it was getting reinforced by the grosses uh, of the movie at the box office, so that you know, it was uh, not just getting played uh, in the media, but it was also the climactic song in a film. So everything was powering together to make this uh, an all-time record, leading to the uh, album, of course. You know, I think it was one of the first, if not the first, album that... Uh, within weeks during this period, 
uh, sold over a million copies in, in a week. Throughout my film, you'll hear uh, me say uh, at various key points to Whitney, are you pinching yourself? Are you, do you know none of this? I mean, here we had come off seven consecutive number one singles, and it was always uh, very natural and apparent to me that this was uncharted territory for an artist for music for Arista and I always wanted to make sure that she grasped because you know she was only turning 19 when we started and, and this was a succession of successes um, so the byword between us always are you pinching yourself? Which, in effect, meant, do you understand how incredible this is? Not normal. Yes, successes are there, but these are extraordinary lifetime, uh, once in a lifetime type successes. So that, yes, you know, certainly by the emotion expressed and those questions, it, Whitney understood that. And, and and she would say, yes, I am pinching myself. Oh, my God. Whoever thought we could equal or top, you know, the experience of seven number one singles in a row. You can imagine this was not just a success. This was history-making, uncharted territory, and thrilling, because you never can expect all-time records. You only get fingers crossed and hope uh, that it comes through never to this degree the success that you've had obviously is, is so massive and one of the things that I was most struck by well, when I saw the documentary uh, the soundtrack of our lives on Apple Music was uh, not only are you successful in you know, finding new artists and, and like like Whitney and, and guiding them, but you you yourself um, are very successful at reinventing artists and reinventing yourself. Uh, you mentioned when you were let go at Columbia, um, later when you were also let go at Arista and had to move on to Jay. Why do you think um, for yourself and, and some of these artists, you mentioned Santana, you also helped Aretha Franklin uh, come back in the 1980s with Dionne Warwick as well. Why do you think you're so successful at reinventing yourself and reinventing so many of these artists? Well, you know, if you will, and thank you for your, for what, you know, for the premise. Um, it's what it takes to not only keep up with the times, but try to be ahead of the time. Try to know um, how music changes. Uh, try to know uh what is still possible. So that for me, discovery, obviously the artists, whether it was all the rock artists on Columbia, whether it was Joplin, you know, or, or, or Springsteen or, or Aerosmith, Earth, Wind and Fire, um, you know, um, Santana, or whether, so th that occurred when I was feeling my way, finding I had a natural gift, and then 
the motivation that Aristotle was, I've got to make this brand new company a major, and I can't just do it from the sales of rock artists. I really, rock artists sell, but, well, some of them, they did, all those Columbia artists, but so much is dependent on the single. And so that led, you know, to my exploring the R of A&R, the repertoire, and finding with my A&R staff songs that could be hits for artists, pop artists, not rock art, pop artists only, pop and R&B artists who didn't write. Um, and so... When you do that, the equal thrill, and I've got to tell you, it is an equal thrill, not just to discover an artist from scratch, but to say who's going to interpret these songs. Uh, You know, as I was looking with ambition and competitiveness to establish a brand new company as a major to compete with Columbia, RCA, and Capital Atlantic. And so it's then I said, well, who should be making records today? Who's not? Who should be? Who has an all-time? This should not be a business of ephemeral one-hit wonders. And it was then that I turned to Dion Warwick, who two nights ago, I went to Philadelphia and I just, presented her with the Marion Anderson, wonderful Marion Anderson Award um, at the Kimball Center in Philadelphia. Um, and so that showing that Dion would not have a hit in uh, a few years after her matchless legacy of Backrack David classics, uh, that we hit with a level of this way again, and deja vu, and followed it up with Heartbreaker, and ultimately that's what Friends of Four, that attracted Aretha, who, of course, had done her classic records with Jerry Wexler, but who would not want to look for material for the greatest singer of all time? Um, and so I said, you know, Aretha should... I can't match natural woman. I can't match respect. Um, But Aretha should be up for Grammys. She's still incredible. Aretha should be um, on the charts. And so that motivated me uh, to meet with her, sign her, and to have, you know, the 35-year history that she and I have had together where I was just with her a week ago at the Elton John Classic uh, charity, rather. And there was Aretha, you know, bringing Elton and Sting and Billy Joel and Bill Clinton and others to their feet all these years later uh, by singing 10 songs in concert. So... Yes, the rediscovery of Santana signing Dion and Aretha, the Great American Songbook with Rod Stewart, 
these are timeless talents, and being able to believe in them that they should not have a short life. They're too great. They're too timeless. They could still be um, chart makers and show the rest of the industry how long a career can last. So I would say that the rediscovery of those artists is equally as thrilling as a Whitney, a Patti Smith, a Joplin, a Santana, you know. Um, and I think it's trying not just to be a slave to what's happening. You've got to recognize when music is changing. You've got to not sit on your laurels and become... Uh, I was never a boutique label in my head. I mean, when I took over Columbia, obviously the only new area that we were exploding, it would be in rock and then uh, R&B. Um, and they were always big in middle-of-the-road pop. Uh, and classical and Broadway music. So you've got to anticipate that music will change and that there is a lurking revolution. It's for that reason that I look to L.A. and Babyface uh, to fund the Face records. And then that brought us the blue-collar kind of records that they were incredible magicians in uh, with their 19 number one R&B records and us bringing the pop world uh, to them as they brought the ever-changing new R&B world to us. And then there was still a lurking revolution at the street level, the hip-hop revolution. And it was Puffy and financing Bad Boy Records you know, that brought us that street. So that on top of, let's say, a Gil Scott Heron that I had signed years earlier at Arista, or Outkast and TLC, who were on the face, we now were able to have Notorious P.I.G., Maze, Puffy, and the great artists at Bad Boy. So that you don't do everything yourself. You've got to be able to have a very strong team of people with you, A&R, promotion, marketing. And then you've got to see who on the outside is doing what you're not doing. And you've got to be very selective. I was very selective in the label deals that I made, uh, beginning with Gamble and Alfred Columbia, then with Elaine Face and Puffy. Um, I always believed in doing it from scratch. I never bought companies for market share. If we were going to get into country music, we started with Tim Dubois, Mike Duncan, Arista Nashville from scratch. Um, when I felt that music would again turn uh, to country, it was Tim Dubois really and his uh, team that came up with Alan Jackson and Brooks and Dunn and uh, Brad Paisley, etc. So you've got to embrace new factors. Some people wait a lifetime for a moment like this. 
greatest American idol when I saw that pop. Uh, there was no new Barry Manilow. There was no new Streisand. There was no new Neil Diamond. And so here there's unexpected um, possibility and the challenge of getting songs because uh, initially none of them initially none of them wrote. <clears throat> you had to find songs as they were being crowned and not depend. You can't just depend on them winning a reality show. Um, I treated the search for that material uh, with my A&R staff, with the Keith Napoli, with the Larry Jackson and the Hush Corelli and Peter Ed, looking for material uh, that would explode that new talent and so that the multi-platinum success that we had with every American idol for the first six or seven years. They all went multi-platinum. Um, you've got to embrace new ideas. You've got to embrace new music, new criteria uh, for what radio will play and new opportunities to see bigger and faster growth. And, you know, just even just listening to that, you can tell just how much a fan of music, just pure and simple music you really are. And I think that one thing in the doc that's really stood out to me, too, is that um, even now, you think you said for the past 20 years, you, you still uh, carry around a lot of the hit records and you listen to to what's going on to, to see what, what sounds are happening, what's changing. Is there any music in, in the, this year or in the past couple of years, any artists that you're really excited about and think that have really bright futures ahead of them? Well, I'm looking to see with this new revolution, with the new stuff that is happening, I mean, I'm heartened when a record breaks that indicates an artist, because there's so much being written today of the cherry-picking that's done, so much written today about streaming where the artist might have a big hit record or a few, and they're not buying the album. And it shows that it's a record, and they're not spiking the curiosity so that the public is not just satisfied with having the single. So that when Adele broke, and notwithstanding over the years that the public, young and old alike, Loved Rolling in the Deep or Loved Hello. Nevertheless, her album sales all over the world stand out and signify, yes, you give us a unique artist, not just a hit record, and we will buy uh, the album because you won't be satisfied with just having the single. So when a unique artist, when a Bruno Mars, when a... Ed Sheeran, when Drake or Kendrick Lamar or Chance the Rapper, you know, I'm always relieved, you know, that you see some of these younger artists showing uniqueness. And so, you know, I was so happy last year to have Chance the Rapper play my Grammy party and show why he uh, is so unique uh, and special. 
This is just a lesson in, in, in music industry success. We can't thank you enough for sharing all these insights, uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame insights, uh, and specifically on uh, Whitney and, and one of uh, your biggest of so many uh, Billboard uh, Hot 100 hits over the years. I will always love you. you know, 25 years ago, uh, really appreciate you taking the time to uh, chat with us today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Mr. Davis. This is this has been fantastic. Really, really appreciate it, especially Thanks as a so huge Whitney fan. This is just such an honor. Thanks so much. Thank you. So if you notice that listening to, to that interview, you don't hear a lot of Trevor. You hear very little of me. When you're in, in just listening to someone with the experience and, and the knowledge that uh, that Clyde Davis has, you you don't talk. You listen. So that's what we did. I mean, you really, truly, yeah, just become a student because, I mean, how just just what I mean, what a pedigree, you know. I mean, we're all lucky if we can just work with you know one of those artists or two of those artists. A lot of executives would be, but just to have. I mean, just in so many iterations, and like we said, I mean, not even just discovering new talent, but also rekindling Santana, bringing Aretha back. Right. I mean, you just, I mean, everywhere you go, everywhere you turn, left, right, center, Clive knows how to make somebody a star. I think there was a, an Oprah Winfrey name drop somewhere in there? He, he Yeah, I mean, he, the guy Casual. wrote a letter to Oprah right. just on a whim, you know? I mean, if I wrote, I have written letters to Oprah on a whim, and they have not gone answered at all. He writes a letter and gets a whole TV show booked. That's true. Anyone can write a letter to Oprah. It's whether she whether she answers. It's, it's Oprah going to read your letter. You're right. Uh, you know, I, I was uh, I, I've seen Clive Davis once in person. It was uh, 2009 when Whitney's "I Look to You" album uh, came out. There was a, a listening event at Lincoln Center, and uh, the room it's this really nice uh, auditorium with uh, at the back wall behind the stage, huge glass windows looks out on New York City. It's just an amazing view. And uh, everyone was just kind of looking out and, and enjoying it. And then uh, Clive uh, comes in to preview the album. First thing he does, has the shades shut on the window. So we're, we're all, it's like a teacher coming in. You know, I want you paying attention. And I remember thinking at the time, well, I'm really sad to, to lose that view, but totally respecting why he did it. He wanted people uh, listening to the album, fully concentrating on it. And I think I think you could hear listening to him here in that interview that he is such a fan of music as much as, as he's a business guy and said uh, so much success at the heart of it all. He's he's a music fan. Absolutely. I mean, you you know, we, we can sit here and you can sort of, I guess, scheme and strategize about making your way to the top. And, and you know, with all those artists, like you said, like we mentioned, people, you know, would, would kill to have careers and be and prod over that but at its core i mean you're absolutely right clive you have to love the music you have to want to see people succeed and you have to just have an innate sense of of you know what good music is to have a career like that i mean that's something you can't you can't teach you can't you know strategize you can't plan you can't build as just something that literally has to be and he's still uh, he's still going to work at Sony Music. He's he's eighty five years young, and, and what a sharp mind, and just what a sharp business sense, and just to hear that, which how inspirational for uh, for for the life he's had, and and the music he's he's given people over the years. I think one of the funniest parts of the documentary is this this clip they show. Um, he's sort of uh, on stage at some sort of maybe a gala or event or whatnot, and he's talking, and Jay Z's in the crowd, and this must have been after Jay Z, you know, retired, quote unquote. 
after the Black Album, and he's talking, and he's like, you know, hey, Jay-Z, you know, five years ago, who would have guessed that you'd retire before me? <laughs> and that just goes to show that the guy, you know, just just works, works, works. And, again, I mean, you got to have the passion to be doing that day in, day out. And uh, it, impressive, too, just the other thing that really hit me is we were talking about uh, uh, Springsteen in the 70s and, and Santana and then uh, the 80s, guiding careers of Whitney Houston and so, so many other uh, artists. And then in the 90s, as music undergoes just a really huge shift when, when rap becomes so mainstream, it collabed sort of casually again. So oh, that's when I started uh, with, with Puffy and, and all these guys. So to, it wasn't just one sound where, where uh, he ever got passed by certain trends. He he continued to, to, to either set them or, or go along with them. And that's that's a key thing that he said. He said, you always have to know what's coming next. Listen to young people. So it's 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 no it's no accident that he's had one of the absolute most legendary careers in, in, in music history. And again, you can catch the documentary Clive Davis, the soundtrack of our lives on Apple Music. Uh, been number debuted number one actually on the on the iTunes uh, top documentary chart. Been in the top three ever since. And shout out to Clive, another award for his I'm sure room house full of awards yeah. at this point. The documentary also won the Critics Choice Documentary Award for the best music documentary. So. Uh, make sure if you have not seen it to go out there and check it. I mean, just again, I mean, it, it's almost like a its own sort of course in pop music history just through the lens of one guy. I mean, he spanned so much, seen so much, done so much. And uh, I feel like this uh, this podcast was was about as long as that career. <laughs> as always, I want to thank you guys for, for sticking with us. We know some of these countdowns. I mean, to go forty to one is is no easy task, and we try to drop some some interesting facts there in between the songs and, and give you a sample of them. So we know sometimes the runtime runtime can get a little high, but we appreciate you guys sticking with us. Hopefully you, you enjoyed the interview with Clive. Um, I mean, again, just how insane that we were able to get somebody just to give us so many insights and, right. and who's been around for so long. So a special thanks to him and his team for arranging everything for that. And of course we have one more song. We always have to play the outro choice of the week. This is as far as we can go. This was number 100 uh, this week to uh, close us out. So uh, we recap the top 40. But uh, show is even all the way down at number 100. You can have a song that's a great song. It was just starting, uh, debuting this week. Uh, 10,000 Maniacs had had uh, success in uh, 1987, 88. They were starting to break through. And then uh, they'd have uh, they hit Trouble Me in uh, 1989. We're still kind of building uh, towards uh, what would be their biggest hit, actually, a uh, cover of, uh, we mentioned Patti Smith uh, earlier, uh, Because the Night would wind up becoming their first top 40 hit in the Hot 100. But the song was before that, and uh, a classic for uh, Natalie Merchant, 10,000 Maniacs. We'll uh, close us out this week with uh, the number 100 song on the Billboard Hot 100. 25 years ago, these are days on the Billboard Jeffy Podcast.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., 